how can you be part of a religious community that straight up sometimes it feels like the church is trying to hold the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the why are they so obsessed they keep trying to get answers i would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming the church is the most vocal political voice against some churches still the one they claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good news when the majority of people on the church end up going to hell when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually It seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good American anti-critical than they are being a good homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And this is the second episode I'm going to do on some introductory thoughts on the cosmic Christ. Because I'm writing about that right now, because I'm immersed in it, I just decided to do a couple introductory things, some initial thoughts to get people going. You know, don't want to give away the entire book, but I think you people can hear cosmic Christ, the universal Christ, you know, like Richard Rohr's book. And it sounds vague, it sounds abstract, you don't fully get it, but I do believe there's a way forward to not only make sense of what people mean when we say Cosmic Christ, but to also see how a greater understanding of the Cosmic Christ or the Christ enlarges our view of Our faith um, helps us make sense of the relationship between the particular and the universal or Jesus and God. And I think it just opens up all kinds of new possibilities, makes sense of a lot of things, helps us be situated in a over 13 billion year old universe while still staying connected with Jesus. I think it, it helps provide this vision to hold all of that together for us. So last week, there were some introductory thoughts on the cosmic Christ, right? Last week, I said, beginning in the very beginning with the Big Bang, right? Through atoms, molecules, cells, simple organisms to human beings, to the formation of communities, right? This unfolding complexity in our universe. There has been a hidden evolutionary force at work, like a sacred engine driving this process. And that from the depth of human creativity, through the unfolding of culture, with the organization of social bodies, right, all all these different forms of complexity and organization, to the expanding, in the broadest sense, to the universe itself, that behind the curtain of the cosmic drama playing out that we are all in and a part of, there is something good and powerful and benevolent intentionally working, and that this is the Christ, The cosmic Christ has been unfolding in, through, and as the universe since the very beginning. We could say it's the creative drive of evolution itself. It's the organizing principle within all forms of complexity. It's the transcendent power imminent within all of life itself. And I talked about the Apostle Paul and other people in the Bible and how these visionary leaders in the early church were beginning to hint at and point to the divine reality 
that has created, continues to animate, and binds together, right? Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together, and binds together all of life since the inception of the universe itself. And how this force is inextricably linked with Jesus, which is what we're getting at today. And because and this attempt to communicate this transcendent and concrete reality continues to this day, and it's what I'm still doing right now. So now, what? How do we make sense of the cosmic Christ, this eternal, benevolent force that incarnated into and through and as the universe from the beginning, who has been driving? this unfolding of life since the beginning that is still within and holding together all of life right now, regardless of whether or not people consider themselves to be Christians, regardless of anything, it is that which is holding all things together with love today. How do we make sense of that in our understanding of the concrete and embodied life of Jesus? Let's let's start with some brief sort of framing thoughts on the relationship between the cosmic Christ and how it relates to the historical Jesus, right? Here's a few. These are all sort of on-ramps to help us begin to make sense of it. You know, when you're learning something new, it's like certain phrases, certain words, certain concepts. They're all like building blocks to build a house you enter into. There are different parts of a puzzle that help you make sense of things. They're on-ramps onto a path. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. So here's where I begin. Jesus is the path that I follow, but Christ is the power that I surrender to. Right? So even right there, Jesus is the path that I follow, a concrete embodied way of life, right? Jesus is the path that I follow, but Christ, this larger transcendent cosmic imminent reality, that is the power that I surrender to. Or Jesus is the incarnation in one place. Christ is the incarnation of God in all of time and space. There was the incarnational moment in Jesus, fully human, fully divine, the union of spirit and matter. But Christ is the incarnation of God in all of time and space. So, There was an incarnational moment in Jesus, but I would argue as a Christian who has at the center of my understanding of Jesus, the incarnation, there is the incarnation of Jesus, but there's also the incarnation of everything, of all of life itself, including right now. There is a perpetual incarnational moment happening. This moment is the union of divine and humanity. This moment is the union of spirit and matter. This moment is incarnational in its fullness. And yet Jesus in Jesus was the incarnational fullness in one place, but it's like that has expanded or has always been true of the incarnation of, of the fullness of divine and humanity, spirit, matter in all places at all times Jesus is the particular pointing us to the universal reality and living reality that is true always. Or I would say Jesus is concrete and historical. Christ is cosmic and eternal. So Jesus is when the flow took on form, when the substance became structure, 
and when the universal power became a specific person. Or as Michael Dowd puts it, and I love this, Jesus is reality with a personality. Okay, so here, here's some other ways, right? On ramps, building blocks, puzzle pieces to help us sort of be initiated and enter further into this vision. Christ is the ground, but Jesus is the guide. Or Christ is the terrain of everything and Jesus is the map. So even that Christ is the reality of all of that which is. But Jesus is the map helping us make sense of and find our way through the terrain of everything. Or Christ is the fullness of God and Jesus is the face of God. So Christ is that which holds all things together, draws humanity forward, fills everything like we looked at the the scriptures last week, and remains the universal drive that guides our own individual evolution and the evolution of the universe itself. Also on a personal level, as we relate to God as the presence of love, Christ is also the embrace of a mother, the affirmation of a father, the fidelity of a lover, the grounding experience of eternal friendship, cosmic welcome, and the primal hospitality that welcomes us home through our first breath. That is that I, I love that. The, and I know I I know I'm saying it, but just the idea of Christ is the primal hospitality that welcomes us home through our first breath. It's it's a little sidebar. It can be hard to feel at home in our bodies and in this world, right? It's like we're itchy and we're uncomfortable and we're anxious and we don't know if we belong and we're wondering what we have to do to finally settle. And Christ, like to me, creation is an act of hospitality. Like being created is God's way of saying this is your home and you're welcome here. So Christ is the primal hospitality that welcomes us home, even in our first breath. So back to the back to the this these on ramps, these building blocks. This is why Richard Rohr says that Christ is another name for everything. And this everything was fully present in and embodied by Jesus. Now Are you with me so far? Christ, Jesus, eternal, concrete, that which drives everything, that which was fully present in in one person, right? Christ is the incarnation. Jesus is the incarnation in one place. Christ is the incarnation of all of time and space and everywhere. It's like everything that is true about Jesus is helping us, helping point us to the reality that this is just true everywhere. And the first chapter of the Gospel of John is this beautiful, rhythmic, and poetic opening about creation. About creation, eternity, and the power of light that draws us into this dazzling tension between the cosmic nature of Christ and the concrete reality of Jesus. That's why John 1 is so essential to understanding of the Christ. And when the writer transitions between eternity and embodiment, which that tension alone is already amazing. He writes, John 1, 1, uh, 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the word, this meaning like this eternal word, this word that has existed, that has been, everything has been created in and through essentially. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. 
We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is where we discover the Word became flesh. We're familiar with this passage, and it speaks to the heart of the Incarnation. And as the writer moves this line of thinking forward with even more illumination, he adds in in verse 18, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. What does Jesus do? He makes the Father known. Other translations say he has shown us what God is like. He has revealed God to us. He has explained him. Jesus is showing us what God is like. Jesus is revealing God to us. Or, or one translation says Jesus is has explained him. So Jesus is explaining who God is through his embodied life. And, and also this is, this is, I've preached on so many different times and it's really foundational for me personally and my understanding of, you know, Christ and Jesus, the cosmic, the concrete, all that stuff. And John 1.18, the English phrase made him known, which is what these translations are versions of, is actually the Greek word exegesado. <clears throat> and I love this word because this specific version of this word is connected to the word exegeomai. I might be saying that wrong. I probably am for people who have studied Greek. I know all you Greek scholars out there. And to ek- exegeomai meant to bring forth to explain, to narrate, and or even to unfold. And this Greek word exegesado is where we get our English word exegesis from. And if you've studied biblical interpretation, the process of exegesis, which is still taught today, involves the interpretation or explaining of the meaning of a particular passage of scripture. So in the same way we exegete the scriptures for others, Jesus was exegeting God for us. See, John is revealing something so powerful. The embodiment of Jesus is the explanation of God. Jesus reveals who God is and what God is like. We could even say that God or spirit is unfolding in and through and as Jesus. Sorry about that email noise that just came up. So if the great Cornell West says that justice is what love looks like in public, John is saying that Jesus is what God looks like in public. If Christ is the presence, Jesus is the path. The cosmic energy of the Christ is concretely expressed in and as Jesus. The universal truth of everything is embodied in the particular life of one person, or We could say God is what Jesus does. It's like Christ is the open field of everything. And Jesus is the way through this field, helping give us access to all that is. See, Jesus kept revealing more of what God is like, which means Jesus kept on challenging every single false story at work in our world about God that is anything less than the beautiful version of who God is that we discover in and through Jesus. 
Which is why, like, here, here's just, let me step back from explanation for a second. It's like we, it's, a, it's like we, God needs a translator into this world, right? If Christ just remains that which is the terrain of everything without a map, without exegesis, without an explanation, there isn't a concrete vision, a concrete map to understand more of who or what or how this God is. Right? We, we don't need, when I say God needs a translator, we don't need a mediator to experience Christ. Right? I, th- I believe somebody can experience the fullness of God or the fullness of Christ with or without the name of Jesus present, with or without any understanding of Jesus. You can experience the fullness of a terrain. Right now, I'm on the 37th floor looking out my window. And I can, there's, uh, I'm right above a harbor, essentially. I'm like two blocks from the ocean. And I can see the ocean from where I am right now. If I stand up, I can see the uh, farthest horizon beyond what I can see. You don't need a map of Honolulu to fully experience the terrain of the ocean. You can jump in, you can enjoy. It's probably 76 to 8 degrees right now. It's beautiful. The color, the feel, the saltiness, like, You don't need a map. You don't need an understanding of the terrain of Hawaii to experience the beauty and fullness of the ocean. No, when I say God needs a translator, no, God doesn't need a mediator. Christ doesn't need a mediator to experience the fullness of what he is. But it's not a mediator to experience him, I would say, but a translator to understand him. A map doesn't help you just be on the terrain, but a map helps you understand the terrain enough to be able to navigate it better, right? There's, because there's different versions of God at work in any culture at a particular time, right? Someone's praying to God to win a poker hand. So that means on their map of understanding that which is the reality of God, of Christ, this person believes that the creative source of everything cares whether or not they win this poker hand. That's their understanding of God or an actor thanks God for an Academy Award, you know, and for blessing them with this. So that's an, that's a particular map of Christ, of God. It appears God cares who's the best actor this year. Or you see a pastor in the United States declared that God has given a very well-known leader the authority to take out or kill another well-known leader in our world. That's a particular map of God. God will make you rich. And apparently God wants to bless us with a lot of money, right? These are all different understandings, different versions of a map to help us understand this. All these people, I could go on and on about all these different versions of God, angry God, distant God, vindictive God, scary God, right? All of these people have different versions of God or different translations of who God is. None of these translations change the substance of God or the substance of Christ, but they change how we think about God. And thus, and this is the important part, how we relate to God and each other in life. And this is why their relationship with God and how they talk about God is so unique. Some compelling, some scary, some beautiful, and just some plain dangerous. So many people believe in God, but not everybody has a map 
to help us see how good, faithful, loyal, and present and powerful this God truly is. But the exegesado, Jesus explaining God, it's the narrating of the presence of God and Christ through Jesus. This is why it's so important. Jesus, one way of saying this is Jesus is what God looks like in real life. So if Jesus forgives that person there, then God will forgive this person over here. If Jesus always moves towards the marginalized, then perhaps this is a God who has a special care for those who have been rejected and pushed to the margins. If Jesus is there in John 8 when the woman is caught in adultery in her most shameful moment and Jesus enters in as a supportive force for her, then perhaps in our most shameful moments, God is present with us in a supportive and loving role. If Jesus kept including those who the religious leaders are willing to un- unwilling to accept, then maybe the Spirit of God is still at work embracing, loving, and accepting those who are still rejected by religious leaders. If Jesus remained faithful and patient with those he was leading, then perhaps God always remains faithful and patient to us as the Spirit is leading us in and through the world because God is what Jesus does. Jesus is the translation of God. The Christ is the terrain, but Jesus is the map helping us understand the nature of the terrain more clearly. Right? God isn't waiting to punish people because God is like Jesus. God doesn't think women are unable to lead or somehow less capable than men because God is like Jesus. God doesn't, I don't think God wants to build walls to keep people from being welcome to our vulnerable because God is like Jesus. God doesn't only love Christians. God loves all people the same because God is like Jesus, right? We could go on because the way Jesus responded to people in those moments is the way God relates to us in these moments because Jesus is the map helping us understand the terrain of Christ, which is the terrain of everything. If you were to look at medieval maps from, I don't know, 1200 to 1700, I was just looking at one from the 1500s because that's what you do on a Thursday morning in Honolulu, Hawaii, look at old medieval maps. You will see these maps with all of these crazy ancient mythological figures on there. Right, like drawn onto the map is a snake body with like a wolf's head that looks like it's a hundred feet long. Or you're gonna see these giant lion fish hybrids in the water, and these creatures oftentimes are swallowing up or attacking boats, right? And the and these creatures look to us now. Because of the maps we have 500, 600, you know, years later. These maps are outdated. These maps are inaccurate. These maps are silly. These maps do not accurately reflect the reality of the ocean and what travel is like. Um, but this, uh, I forget, I don't, I don't think I know the first name, but Van Duzer, who's a map historian at the Library of Congress, who I think wrote a book which is where I was looking, which I was looking through today. He wrote a book. I don't know the name of it right now, but he wrote, but in fact, like we think these are like just 
mythological insanity in kind of just movie stuff. But he wrote, but in fact, a lot of them come from what were considered at the time scientific sources. Back then, the map they had of reality said there was 100 foot, 50 foot lionfish hybrids, creatures with wolf heads like in the water, the kraken, you know, a giant octopus waiting to swallow your boat. That map shaped and affected how people understood the ocean and how they thought about travel and how they related to traveling itself. See, an accurate map does not change anything about the terrain, but it changes our understanding of the terrain, and this changes how we interact with the terrain. It's like these famous words of Jesus. He said multiple times, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's like Jesus kept saying, or maybe another way of thinking about that is you have been given these maps of life of who God is, of how God works, of who God loves, of what this all is. It's like, you've been given these maps, but now I'm offering you a better map, a more clear map. One that my very life is the map that helps you understand the terrain of God and Christ and the terrain of everything. One that's driven by love, one that's defined by grace, one who is marked by welcoming the outsider, etc., etc. So that's where I begin with the concrete and the cosmic, with the particular and the universal, with Christ and Jesus. Christ just is the fullness of everything. But it's like without an accurate map of that, it's very hard for us to believe this is all good, to believe everything's okay, to believe God is with us, to believe in the end things are going to work out, to believe in the power of grace and believe that love is the deepest structure of the universe, right? That's Those are not easy things to believe. You can experience God directly and know that for yourself. That is the power of the life with God. It's, the, it's what the mystics keep pointing us towards, direct experience of the benevolent, loving mystery of all of this. It's, but Jesus is the map that helps us trust the terrain, that shows us that it is that good, that shows us that God is that faithful, that shows us that that which created all, has existed eternally, created all things, sustains all things, is still loving and sustaining and, and recreating things today. Because God is what Jesus does. So beginning thoughts, the cosmic Christ, the relationship with Jesus. Not sure if I'm going to do another one, but I thought these are important things for people who are growing and evolving right now to, I think, help us make sense of our relationship with Jesus and what that means, our connection with Christ and God, and what it means to be situated in an ever-expanding, unfolding universe that has been happening for billions of years.